0: When I say database, you probably think relational database, SQL and tables and the rest. But we all know that's not the only game in town. Neo4j is a popular graph database that's been around in helping people solve interesting graph problems for a long time. And they've recently improved their integration with Kafka. I talked to their own Michael Hunger and David Allen about how graph databases work together with streaming on today's episode of Streaming Audio, a podcast about Kafka, Confluent, and the cloud. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Streaming Audio. Uh, Very pleased to have in the studio today two guests from Neo4j, Michael Hunger and David Allen. Michael and David, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us,
0: Tim. You got it. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about what you do. Michael, you first. What uh, is your role?
1: So my role at Neo4j right now is I'm leading the Neo4j Labs effort, which is part of developer relations at Neo4j. I've been with the company actually for a long time. I started uh, in 2010 to work with Neo4j. Uh, so it's been almost 10 years and it's really great to kind of see in you know, all the time, uh, the product growing up like a child to an, an adult, growing the company being growing and the community growing as well. And like having all these amazing people to work with. So, and uh, as part of Neo4j Labs, we build integrations of Neo4j with other technologies. We build uh, like bleeding edge technology um, stack integrations and and things like that. And that's what we do and then talk about them, show them and have people use them and good time uh, using Neo4j with those.
0: Awesome. And yeah, your path and mine have been crossing since about that time. Exactly. uh, Capacity as developer relations people, even back before you called it developer relations.
1: So. Yeah, exactly. So it's been almost also like ten years, almost, right, Tim? Yeah,
0: so that's incredible. Time flies. <laughs> David, uh, t- tell us, tell us about yourself. Uh, my name's
2: David Allen. I'm, I'm a partner solution architect with Neo4j. And day to day, what I, what I mostly do is work with Neo4j's strategic partners and also look for spots where we can improve the product by developing uh, integrations and interoperability with other systems like Kafka. And that's really what drew me into the Kafka world. Um, I've been with Neo4j for about two years and I was a user out in the community trying to build real systems and running into graph problems. That's kind of what brought me to it. It was only a couple of years after that that I ended up working for the company. Well, I tried um, really hard
1: to get him in. So (laughs) I'm really happy that it worked out.
0: And and you did, that's excellent. so um that's uh David, we may have to may have to call you Segway Man because that's an excellent Segway uh that you just gave us there. Thank you. Um because that's really what we're talking about today is uh there is a new Neo4j and Kafka connector. Before we get there though, uh I kind of think uh just in case anyone is uninitiated, I sort of think we should talk about what Neo4j is. So And by the way, all these questions, these are just going to be jump balls between you guys. So um, whoever wants to take them, take them. But tell us what Neo4j is.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll take this one. Uh, So Neo4j is a graph database. It's an open source graph database. And graph databases are databases like others, but they actually were built to handle those gazillion of joint tables that you usually have in a relational system, which kind of cause a lot of pain and a lot of confusion for people. And so graph databases evolved as a way of dealing with these complex connections between your business entities and allowing you to have uh, very uh, involved um, queries that traverse and include a lot of these entities in a single query. And they do that by using different data structures within the database, there's actually a real data structure to handle relationships between entities, which is really cool. And by following these relationships, like chasing pointers in, in memory, they are allowing you to have uh, queries running much faster that have a lot of joins. And so graph databases have been around for quite some time. As I mentioned, Neo4j, I joined Neo4j in 2010, uh, but Neo4j started much earlier as actually a part of a real system and was then extracted as a separate project, uh, open source project and and, uh, also product. And uh, what's really cool about graphs is that's a very natural way of modeling data. So you might have seen graphs all over the place, right? Every marketing material that you look at has Bubbles that are connected by the, by arrows or lines. So that is a, that's that is a you, very
0: trendy piece of kind of background graphic art. Exactly. I, I noticed the other day the default LinkedIn banner. Right now, it's a graph. You know. Yeah, so exactly.
1: It's kind of really cool to to see that. But you also know that when you're, for instance, discussing with someone and domain problem, you oftentimes grab a whiteboard, you draw circles and arrows for the different entities that you're talking about. So it's
0: basically you're drawing a graph on whiteboard. Exactly. It's it's the native, it's like everybody's native visual language is a graph.
1: Yeah. And that makes it also really natural for non-developers to kind of carry on discussing the data model while it's already in the database, because the database model is exact, exactly this bubbles and arrows, so entities and relationships model. And that makes it so powerful because it's really easy to take real world concepts and connections and put them into this database. Whoever tried to do that with relational databases, I, I've done that in the past and it was not such a fun experience. It's kind of putting really complex domain uh, models in relational databases. You know that you end up with a lot of join tables, a lot of joins and, it's not, not fun and it's also not very performant. And so with a graph database, this natural model keeps on going, but it's also kind of faster to, to work with that, which is kind of really cool. Also, if you have trees or long paths or you do route, routing or some things like that, that makes it also quite, quite natural uh, to do that as well. And so Neo4j is actually, sorry, go
2: ahead. Um, I I'd wanted to give an example of, this is kind of the example of how I came to graphs. I had this real world business problem. I had to come, I had to start using graphs because I couldn't get it really done any other way. Uh, I was working for a company in the DC area that was serving the federal government and we were building this provenance solution where it basically was a database of all these reports that they had and where those reports were derived from. You know, what kind of source data did they use? How trustworthy was it? That sort of thing. And so you ended up with this graph of reports where, you know, this report cites these other reports and that in turn is based on something else. And very quickly that adds up to this really dense, complicated graph. And so when you're doing this in relational databases, typically what most people are going to do is they're going to have a table for reports and it's going to have a foreign key on it that says, you know, who is my parent or, you know, maybe some other join table where you're going to say, what am I based off of and then join to another table. But when the business user comes to you and says, I want to get a list of reports that are about this topic, um, that contain data sourced from this particular federal agency. I don't care if it was sourced from them, uh, in the immediate preceding report or six hops ago. Uh, it's really, really difficult to express that in SQL because it's not only a join of two tables, but it's a recursive join and you don't know how deep you have to go. I mean, really you're talking about a breadth first search, uh, but with SQL joins and, um, I kind of went up the mountain and consulted with the SQL wizards and they they showed me how to do that. And while it's possible to get an approximation of that, it's quite difficult with relations. When you then take that same data and you model it as a graph, the answer turns out to be two or three lines of Cypher. Uh, which is the query language that we use with Neo4j. And it's quite intuitive to understand and works really, really well. And so, you know, the moral of the story is that if the data in your business domain is fundamentally graphy, or if the way that you think of it is most easily expressed as a graph, uh, you might be in a good space for a graph database.
0: Especially when you get to those kinds of things, like you said, you know, uh, was is there data in this report that at any time came from uh, something labeled, uh, according to some federal agency, or you know, some some source, no matter how many hops ago. Yeah, uh, exactly. You know, another wise, case. Oh, go ahead. Uh,
2: another case might be, for example, everybody knows the Kevin Bacon game. How many uh, hops, or how many degrees of separation are you away from Kevin Bacon if you ever were in a movie? That's a very graphy query too, where you're basically asking for a shortest path through a graph. I acted in this movie along with this other person, and then there's some path that leads back to Kevin Bacon. You know, if, if folks want to know what the, the value of a graph database is, I would just challenge them in their own time to try to write the Kevin Bacon score query in SQL. Right.
0: Like it can be done, but um, it's not pleasant and performance relational databases are not optimized uh, to do that in a performant way, period. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. when you have those the 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 deep joins or recursive joins, so just 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 don't. You know, we have yeah. databases like Neo4j for that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, and actually, it's interesting. There's not just Neo4j. There's a family of graph databases. So lots of different databases from different. Uh, Vendors and you have also some graph uh, background to Tim, as, as you know, as I know, and you know. Uh, so it's it's a lot of kind of different um, companies are looking at this and say, okay, we want to provide people with a better solution in this area. And um, so it's been uh, a long time since Neo4j has tried that, but now we are joined by lots of other companies as well who we'll also provide data databases in this space. So which is really cool. Uh, something I wanted to mention about Cipher because why do you need another cray for, language for graphs. Why can't you use just SQL? Right. It's actually quite interesting. So besides what David said is also what we try to do with Cypher is actually to take this visual diagram that you would draw on a, on a whiteboard or on a piece of paper or in your diagramming app Uh, And turn this into a query language so that you basically visually can represent your entities and their connections with ASCII art. So you take round parentheses around your entity that represent like the circles on your whiteboard and then dash, dash, greater than signs as, as directional arrows that you can express. Okay, this person acted in this movie or this report was from this agency or um, this uh, flight departs from this airport or something like that. So it's just an ASCII art representation, which is really cool. So it's easy to write and easy to read, and especially for non-developers, also easy to read. So you have all the business folks that know more about the domain than the developer can still follow these queries and understand them and correct them and comment on them. And so that makes it very intuitive not to take... Uh, you know, this data and the domain model and throw it in a database and suddenly all this richness of the domain is gone, but you keep it on both in the database and also in the query language, which is, I find always, you know, like an epiphany going up in people's eyes when you talk to them about that. And when you say, okay, now we can take what you just throw on a whiteboard and take it in database to show it to them again. And they say, oh, it looks the same like it looked before. And that's makes me always happy to see people, i um, excited about that uh, opportunity as well.
0: Yeah, it seems like the value of the graph database is, well, there's, there's two things. Number one, like David was underscoring, uh, there's simply performance on some kinds of problems uh, where it's optimized to mm-hmm. do them in a reasonably performant way. And if you try to bend a relational database or a key value store or something into doing that, it can all be done, it's just you're not gonna like it. It's not gonna run well. Um, and the other one is in the mind of the developer, and this is often where i am and where i'm trying to see the value in things is how are we optimizing for uh you know developer cycles and for graphy very graphy problems that we're thinking of and like you said you go to the whiteboard you draw a dang graph you know that's what you do and that's what's in your mind and now, well, that's the abstraction that the database presents to you. Uh, you can kind of see it with arrows and things in the query language and it's almost like the edges are labeled in Cypher and everything. So you yeah. just get a lower cognitive load of translating your very graphy problem into um, you know the actual data infrastructure that's managing the graph.
2: Yeah. I, I think that's right. Um, there are so many different databases out there. You know, it's funny from my perspective, maybe it was about 10 years ago, the database market completely fractured and you ended up, instead of everybody having the one database to rule them all, you started to have these many different families of specialized databases that were really really good at a narrower subset of things so that's when you started to have the document stores the key value stores the graph databases the relational databases and then relational even subcategorized out into row stores versus column stores and on and on and on and so that entire market kind of fractured and so for the developer really it's a right tool for the job type of a story um, it's not that one database is ever going to be better than all of the rest of the databases. But, you know, sometimes you need a hammer and sometimes you need a saw. And I would compare the different database families to that kind of a yeah, metaphor.
0: Yeah, that at least at least the tools are available. And that's what I was saying nine years ago, you know, when I was giving NoSQL survey talks, including talks about Neo4j. Um, yeah, I know I, I
1: found your slides on, on, on the Internet while I was looking for something else, which was really cool. to <laughs> There see they them. are.
0: I probably don't want to look at those slides from nine years ago, but I'm glad you like them. Yeah, but uh, I have to say they
1: were already great back oh, then. So you. it was. Uh, you no, know, after Ascon, I, I was looking for something and I came across your slide and said, "Oh, cool, Tim already did really good slides back
0: then, not just now." So <laughs> well, thank you. Um, but it's um, uh, it's it's just good that the toolbox has those tools in it now, uh, and it, it used to be for mm-hmm. one, and now it's a lot.
1: Yeah, what's interesting about this is, of course, that you have to solve the integration story, right? It's similar to the monolith to microservice problem where you move one... We go away from one problem, basically from the maintenance of the monolith to like maintaining smaller microservices. But then you get an orchestration problem, and it's similar, I guess, with applications and NoSQL databases that you still have the Definitely. orchestration problem, right? And that's actually something where where Kafka comes in as a really good solution for you know connecting streams of data between databases or being the backbone of of such a data architecture as well, right? So and that's.
2: Right. If you look at Kafka as sort of the glue between some of those components, though, one of the things that it does is it frees you up to not have to choose the one database to rule them all and then deal with its uh, shortcomings, but rather you can pick different solutions in different places and wire them all together with a common messaging bus and so on. And I think... You know, that's one of the things we wanted to talk about today was this idea of adding graph capabilities to a streaming architecture. It's not about making sure that Neo4j is the primary or only database in an architecture. I don't, you know, there are a lot of very large scale applications for which, you know, it would be crazy to think of any one database as the database. It's about adding a set of, of new capabilities to a distributed application that may be strung together. Exactly.
0: To uh, once again, David Allen playing the role of Segway man. Thank you, David. Because I and that's I was thinking, because I, I clearly remember ten years ago the the summer of no sequel and all of the terrible and just misguided posts on Hacker News about the CAP theorem. It was like there was one every week, and mm-hmm. you know you're trying to mm-hmm. read the news in the morning and these posts are assaulting you. It was <laughs> kind of a dark time in that sense, but you know <laughs> overall a really good time in that you know now's this there's this flowering of databases and the paradigm shift that we see. At least that you know that I mostly focus on now is uh, this shift to streaming. And Michael mentioned microservices integration, and you've got you know that I think they're architectural megatrends. Uh, they have separate origins, but uh, here they are meeting in the middle, and we're finding that oh hey we broke our programs up into a bunch of little pieces and ran them on separate computers. Uh, looks like the only way for them to communicate that really works is through messaging through something like Kafka. And then,
2: (laughs) you know, Tim, the very first time I used Kafka, I I have to admit, like my very first reaction to it was this feels like the ESBs I was using in the 1990s, except it's way less painful.
0: So we're, we're always careful. I have there's this one slide I have in this one presentation, and I always get this little tinge of guilt, like. Oh boy, this looks like I'm I'm making the ESB pitch from 20 years ago and we're absolutely not. You know, there are some very important architectural differences that make Kafka not a yes, dang there ESB. Are. Um, and and you know, there's much less XML which is kind of you know just sort of a, a incidental thing, but there isn't routing that goes inside it, right? There's topics and topics are just logs. They're just there. If you want to route, right. will you write a program mm-hmm. for that you know, that's, that's your application that does that. And that Mm -hmm. rather than locking that routing and transformation and more and more sophisticated rules that some specialist is defining with big complex XML files, um, you know, rather than locking that inside a temperamental team that doesn't want to help you. um, It's always in the hands of the developer in Kafka, right? You write software and your software uh, logs messages back and forth, And, you know, then you win. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, to to your point about the architectural differences, uh, you know, maybe 15 years ago, people were mostly passing big heavyweight messages between gigantic stateful monoliths. And uh, the idea of, you know, message processing functions being these tiny little pieces of stateless logic that map one stream onto another I think is a, a pretty major development. And then that itself is only one component of how you build a larger application, which kind of even further moves this kind of an architecture away from what people were doing with the ESBs before. And you you start to, start to think of it more as an enabler for a fundamentally new way of writing applications and less of, oh, hey, we're moving yeah, messages couldn't. across the wire.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of like... CQRS architecture support as well, right? So where you have kind of the separation of where's the data stored, and uh, where's it actually used, and um, so the, kind of the separation, clean separation of responsibilities as well, and having a reliable system that underpins that helps a lot in making making those decisions. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel as a developer to build it, yeah. all the stuff yourself. No, exactly.
0: Your Couldn't have said it better myself. So with that, cool. Let's let's talk about that. And Michael, you mentioned CQRS, uh, which is. For the uninitiated, you can Google it. Uh, it stands for Command Query Responsibility Segregation. And that's the idea where uh, an application takes inputs or commands. You know, hey, go do this thing, and then later on, you want to ask that application, "What's the state of the world? what What's the result of those commands that I issued in the past? What happened? And how, What are things? Um, <clears throat> and the way that you process the inputs is probably different than the way you process those requests. Like inputs could be whatever they are, but what if you have some very graph shaped query problem? Well, you want to get that data that's coursing through these Kafka topics, you want to get that data into a Neo4j database, for example, in that case, yeah, which gets us to the whole reason that we wanted to talk today, which is that you have a new Kafka Connect connector. That's true. So um, how did that connector come to be?
1: That's a really, uh, really cool point. Actually, uh, what I want to mention initially is that it's not been even 12 months since we started with the first line of code of the connector. And now we're already talking to you on the streaming audio podcast, which is really, really cool. So there's been a lot of really quick development on, on all sides of uh, kind of working on the connector code, partnering with Confluent, all our users and, and customers that have been using that and giving us feedback. So it's been really energizing and, and, and cool place to be. So actually it, it started with, um, you know, many Neo4j customers and users have already been using Kafka to uh, connect Neo4j to other databases or, or other data sources or things, right? So getting data out of Neo4j into other places or the other way around and ingesting data from as we are using Kafka into Neo4j. But we got kind of this more and more uh, frequent requests. Isn't there something out of the box that we could use uh, with Neo4j so we don't have to reinvent the wheel? Uh, for the end of time. And so we um, looked at uh, some of the existing uh, implementations, some of the offerings. There was also a uh, proof of concept connector on on, um, um, on Kafka Connect on Confluent Hub. And we decided to to partner with one of our um, technology partners to build something uh, from scratch that actually serves uh, all these, these needs of the users. So it was uh, meant to be... Um, both as an um, Neo4j extension, so that means you would install it into Neo4j, uh, but also as a Kafka Connect plugin. So depending on your deployment needs, you could uh, choose either or uh to run this and we implemented it in kotlin because i really love kotlin and it's a really great language uh, so that was also one you thing implemented
0: that... it in kotlin because yeah. you're cool
1: no but I, I love <laughs> kotlin so i've been using kotlin for since 2014 or something like that and uh, oh wow
0: oh, you've been at it since the beginning
1: yeah That's it quite, was really really cool. early and i, I just like this language and so i said if you want to build something new i want to build it in kotlin um anyhow so um the uh as I said, the needs were different, right? So one of the needs is, of course, uh, capturing changes in Neo4j and exposing them to other systems, be it for auditing reasons, be it for uh, aggregating changes lower, lower, uh, and uh, visualizing them, for instance, or having other databases or other systems being updated from changes from Neo4j. So that is the whole CDC topic, uh, change data capture. And I had really good conversations with Gunnar Morling from uh, DBium whom you also had on the, on the show, I he think, has been
0: right? a recent guest on the yeah. show, yes. Yeah,
1: so, and, and Guna and I had really good discussions about how Debezium approaches things. And um, originally, we wanted to build something directly in Debezium, but unfortunately, Neo4j does not have an external API yet to uh-huh. uh, capture or extract uh, CDZ information directly. So we had to build this uh, Neo4j extension, which we then kind of built in a way that it's com- compatible to the Debezium APIs and, and message formats, uh, but it would you have to install it in Neo4j. So that's something that's planned for the future that we have a kind of database independent uh, Kafka connect- connector and then the question is where we put it. Um, so you can capture change events uh, from Neo4j into uh, into arbitrary Kafka topics. So you can basically in your configuration describe, I want to have these entities or these relationship uh, with these labels or, or names uh, captured on change, and export these properties of those uh, entities into into Kafka messages.
0: And to be clear, this this is a feature of the current version. Exactly, that's a feature of the current version. So I'm talking a little bit about the, the features of the current
1: version. Yeah. So the um, the other feature uh, the, that we implemented is an is a sync. So that means events from Kafka can be ingested into neo j And the sync has many or three different ways of operating. So one is where it can actually ingest these CDC events uh, from another source that has uh, like the Debezium format or a neo j source. Um, one-to-one where you don't have to do anything about it. Just say, this is I want to ingest uh, from this topic. And it takes care of that. Another mode is where you basically say, I want to turn events from Kafka one-to-one into nodes in Neo4j, so it's just a one to one ingestion of uh, event structures but the third one is one that i'm really personally happy and proud uh, about which is you know usually uh, a graph structure is not a trivial data structure so it's not just like one table or one document or something like that but it could be something where one message actually triggers an update in this place in the graph, then adding a relationship in this other place, removing a relationship in a in third place and adding a new property to another node. So it, like you might have with one single message, you might have to change things in seven different places in, in your graph to represent the, the essence of that message. And so we kind of discussed back and forth on how we want to kind of represent this mapping. And I said, actually, we have a really powerful query language which can already do all of that. Uh, so we allow people to... Um, map and Kafka topic to a cipher statement. Uh, So the events that come from from Kafka are batched into uh, regular-sized batches, so 5,000 to 50,000 batches or so. And then it actually executes that cipher statement. And so your single Kafka event can be turned into an arbitrary number of changes in the graph. It can create new subgraphs. It can update parts in the graph. It can remove parts of the graph depending on what you want to Want to do, and that's a really powerful mapping where you take a single document model, basically what an event is, and turn it into a much more um, advanced data structure.
0: Basically, that is super cool. I did not know the connector did that. So just to re- just to cap there, it's, it's proper to say that it does full new 4 j CDC, so I can use it as a source connector. Yeah, yeah. And there's the trivial right. sync connector, which is I have a message, go make it a node, um, and. We don't know what happens with edges in that case. It just, here's a new node.
1: Then it just creates nodes. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Basically turns it directly one to one into node.
0: But the thing that you probably want is run the cipher statement taking the event as input and mutating the destination graph, the sync graph, yep. however the cipher statement says. exception. Super cool. So a, a thing we've got
2: coming in the connector to this isn't real today, but it's actually in PR stage right now. It's yeah. getting there. Um, So Michael gave you two options uh, to use the Cypher statement or to just put a regular node in there. Um, There's going to be a third option. Now if you were to write a big complex Cypher statement, it would almost be like you're doing the message transformation yourself in Cypher, if that makes sense. If you were to just create a node, it's just a flat node and then maybe you do something else with it later, maybe not. Um, uh, The third option is to use something like ksql to do the transformation for you, and then to have KSQL output a separate stream of messages that are basically like create node and create relationship commands. Okay, so imagine I took a big JSON object and I destructured it, and I and I know that the implication of this JSON object is that I need to create three nodes and a relationship between them. Well, you could use KSQL to do that transform and inject onto a different topic a really simple format that the connector is in the future going to support that basically says create a node like this, create a relationship between these two nodes and so on. And that way you can delegate the transformation out of the Cypher layer to KSQL if that's what you prefer.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Thank you, David.
0: So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is the voice of a gentleman who understands <laughs> well, how to use so, KSQL. So David, yeah, that was
2: great. I, you know, I've been, so, I, I have had the privilege to um, have some early access to the KSQL preview on Confluent Cloud, and I've been really digging it.
0: Nice, nice. So yeah, there's a lot of things you could do with KSQL. It's not just this, but when you're in this problem of, I have you know, maybe several event streams or several topics, and what I really want is this row to get inserted into this database or this node, to get created in a graph. Um, well, you know, you can turn those several things into one thing. Yep. That's kind of what KSQL yep. does. You can join and transform in there. And so that is absolutely brilliant. Uh, just have that query running, and then you you run, you configure the connector to run on the topic that's the output of the KSQL query.
2: Well, right. And if, if you have an abstract JSON format that is essentially like a command to create, update, or delete a node or edge, the the interesting possibility for me with that is that because Neo4j is schema flexible, you can change your data model from the outside by modifying how you do that transformation without touching the connector config, if that makes sense. Right,
0: right. Um, now, the just a technical question to satisfy my curiosity. In the case when you are doing this with Cypher, um, and my guess is a lot of people do that because it seems super flexible. Yes. Um, that, the only place in the system computationally that knows how to do that is the Neo4j server. So that's uh, like a REST call back to Neo4j from Connect in that case, right?
2: Well, in in this particular case, so Neo4j has a binary protocol called Bolt, and you can think of that as serving the same purpose as JDBC does for relational databases. Got it. So effectively you issue Cypher commands over the Bolt protocol. And when you use the Connect worker, uh, it's making a, a bolt connection to the server and um, basically turning those events coming from Kafka into a stream of Cypher queries, okay. or at least that's one way to use it. Right,
0: and that's any just like any yeah, exception. just like you're using a database. <laughs> at
2: that point. Well, in fact, you are. Yes. So exactly it's, it's, like it's funny. using a database. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> yeah, and what's also cool there is, uh, it also takes care of batching there for you. So it does not send actually one Cypher query per event, but it can also batch them together and send just a single query and a, and a pack of uh, events batched together as a parameter. That makes sense. And then it takes care of um, you know applying them all in one go, so you have much more uh, uh, throughput uh, on that on that side as well. Yeah, and that's kind of exactly what's kind of running in the in, uh, in Kafka Connect is uh, Neo4j. The Neo4j sync plugin, uh, which you then can connect to any arbitrary Neo4j uh, instance or cluster, and it will take care of things like routing and retries and and all the other things that you get from from the uh, Bolt protocol out of the box. Uh, so that's something you don't have to worry about um, at all, because it's just like a client to, to the database.
0: Is that, uh, well, let me just ask, uh, what was the hardest thing about the connector? I know you guys weren't the original author, but you had your hands in it. What's hard about doing this? My guess is this yeah. the cipher integration, but
1: uh... yeah, actually that was not
0: so hard. Uh, <laughs> I, I think uh, there are
1: three things to come to mind for me uh, that were not so trivial, and uh, so one is um, like the configuration, especially around batching, uh, was not so trivial because you know have, you have batching on the on the Kafka side on in terms of like. Um, batch sizes and, and, and message sizes and, and things like that. So kind of how to control how big a batch is. is not so obvious always that you get in, in one oh, go. Yeah. Uh, the second thing was um, error handling and monitoring. So it seems that uh, this is a little bit of a challenge where you have to decide how do I do that, right? So do I just lock errors and proceed? Do I use a dead letter queue, Um How do I do it in Connect, for instance, and and, and things like that? Do I throw errors or not? Um, So that was something that um, is uh, a little bit challenging. And the third one is, as Neo4j is a schema-free database, uh, kind of integrating with schema registry is something that's also something that is not so trivial because it's similar to when you have, let's see, CDC from something like Mongo, then you also don't have a schema. So you basically have to also send along the schema with each CDC message, for instance, right? So which is then harder to do with a schema registry because it, you can't really guarantee that like the schema is uh, the same for one node versus the other, because every node in a, or every relationship in a graph can have arbitrary number of different properties, depending on how much data you have or how much information you have available for, for that en- entity. And so that's uh that's the uh, third uh, bit that was a little bit or is a little bit challenging so we're still working I've on making
2: that I've got two more that I, that I might (laughs) add. There's so many hard things. (laughs) Well, (laughs) right. Uh, when you're moving from. (laughs) Databases are very, very hard. I mean, which is why so many people in the architecture world are trying to move to stateless components right now, because you get rid of a lot of the headache if you get rid of the state. Right. Um, what are databases about? They're fundamentally about managing and tracking the state. So it's uh, a little bit hard to make those stateless. Um, uh, one thing that is, is tricky is balancing uh, throughput and sequencing. So, for example, right. let's say that I read 100 messages off of Kafka in a batch. Um Now, the database tends to be optimized for doing lots of transactions in parallel. So I would definitely maximize throughput if I would do lots and lots of those batches. And at any given time, I'd be executing 20, 30, 50 or more transactions against Neo4j. Neo4j wouldn't even break a sweat and you'd have great throughput. Um, On the downside, if we're using this for a strict data replication CDC type use case, the order of evaluation matters quite a lot. And so, uh, you know, if these commands that are creating, updating and deleting things to, you know, mirror Neo4j along with some other source are executed out of order because the transactions succeeded uh, in a different order, you could be in trouble. So, uh, you know, obviously we can make it strictly ordered, but then we might have to compromise throughput, like how to balance those kinds of, of, of factors is one. And then the last is maybe some differences in model semantics. So for example, in Neo4j, when you create a node, let's say that you hang five relationships off of it that go to other nodes. And then let's say somebody sends a tombstone record or says, I want to delete that node. Okay, in Neo4j, if you say, I want to delete that node, by default, this operation would fail because it would say, relationships have to be connected to something. You can't just delete the node. You need to delete the node and also detach it from its relationships, which will delete those relationships as well, because we can't have dangling relationships that point into the void. No flow of force. That's right. So when a person says to delete a node, there's uh, this little question of differing semantics. The user probably means to detach the node, delete both the node and the relationships, and yet it might be uh, surprising to them that when they say delete a node, they're also deleting 15 relationships. Right, right. Because it, keeping in mind that the relationships can be separate property holders and might have any number of other pieces of metadata on them. And so thinking through some of those things and making the most common use match what the user expects, I, I think, is a tricky part because... Uh, of the difference of how graph data model semantics work.
1: That's also a good point in general. I I think uh, that we only started so far, but we need to do more of is uh, to talk to more different users and use cases and see which of those have we already captured and in in what we offer and which ones have we not captured as well yet, right? So some of those come up with where people put up issues and say, okay, this didn't, didn't work as we expected it to work. But sometimes we need to reach out more and see did we capture like the majority of the common uh, use cases that people want to do between Kafka and neo 4 yep. So that's something that uh, is uh, an ongoing
2: process for us. Um, so so I, I should say generally about the connector, one of the, as a as a person who works with our strategic partners and customer base, a reason that we wanted to have this connector in the first place is that we see Kafka being used in our customer base quite a lot. And so when we think about how we evolve the connector over time, a lot of that Um, or at least part of it is going to be driven by community open source requests and also what the commercial customer base says, you know, what do you need? How are you using this? And what then does the connector need to do in order to best support uh, getting value out of this?
0: Right. So all of that discussion um, was fantastic. I mean, it started off, uh, you know, Michael, you said error handling and batching and things like that, which is like software adulthood, you know, actually making it a thing that is mature. Um, and then all the way to the discussion of, of the different model semantics is such a great illustration of why Kafka Connect matters. Now it's fairly rare, but every once in a while, when I'm talking in public about Connect, it'll usually be like a part of an introduction to the platform sort of talk. you know Every once in a while I'll get a question like, "Well, couldn't I just write that myself?" And you know, in, in my inner voice is the answer is, "Oh, child." Yes. Yes, yes, you could. And maybe you should. You know what? I think maybe you should just once. Because you're not you're clearly not gonna listen to me. But you know, we all are I think are formed by by hardship, and maybe you need some. Um in your life you haven't had enough. But so this is all just a super good example of the fact that it's it's conceptually trivial. Thing happened in graph database, put thing in topic, you know, message is in topic, put message into graph database. And it's even a little weird putting it into a graph database. Okay. Mm -hmm. Transform it through a cypher query. I get it. But the reality is um, it is kind of a grind. Uh, It's, it's conceptually very easy, but uh, connect exists because this is a non-trivial problem. And, and Michael, you said it's only been being worked on for a year and we're already on, on the podcast, you know, well, yeah, because it takes that long to do this right. It's it's actually hard. So uh, I just it's a good thing to underscore. It it definitely is. I think every piece of software
2: has a long tail that when you're looking at it from a high level conceptual point of view, you always miss. And so you know it's it's valid to describe a connector as well. Okay, you take a message off of a topic and you put it into a database. And from that conceptual perspective, everything looks dead simple. Um, but, uh, you know, you have some 20% of features that get 80% of the use, and then you have this really, really long tail of very specific yet still critical needs, and that's where that grind comes from. And, you know, part, partly, you know, Tim, as, you're, as you were saying that, the reason I'm laughing is because I'm just reflecting on the, the difference between old age and experience and youth and vigor. Right. Yeah. Um, I've been guilty of that many times where, where I think to myself, wow, that, that looks really simple. Why don't I just knock this Uh out in an afternoon or in a weekend or something? And yeah, you kind of sort of could do that, but, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like the month
0: after that, when the pain would start. That's it. You could knock out something in a weekend. It's just, nobody's going to use it because now it needs six months of edge cases. Oh, even
2: worse, somebody might start to use it and then they would look to you for support and then you would, through a long, iterative, painful process, discover why it wasn't actually that easy. I think uh, Linus Torvalds did that with operating <laughs> systems once upon a time. 30 years later. <laughs> That's right. I mean, look at that guy. I mean, he really was that smart and kind of did knock out an operating system in a relatively compressed period of time. Finish mental. Thirty years later, he's yeah. still on that mailing list. Yeah.
1: I guess it's a it's actually good uh, um, illustration of of two two aspects. So one is, of course, you can knock it out over the weekend, but then. Um, if you don't have users, you don't see all the the long tail, basically. So that's where open source comes in. And it's really cool to get people using it and reporting back or even contributing back, fixing issues. And so that's one aspect. But then, of course, um, you also have like people who want to put this in production and want to have support for it. So there's where the partnerships and the you know, providing this higher level of um, guarantees uh, for something like that. So, and having both in, in such a project is really helpful, right? So you can do on one side, you can iterate quickly, you have open source, you get all the contributions and lots of feedback. And on the other side, you can provide a sound solution uh, through the partnership and through the the efforts on both sides uh, that customers can and users can rely on. And I think that's a really good combination of, of, of both.
0: Awesome. Yeah. How, tell me about GraphQL now. I know Cypher is uh, the native language of um, of Neo4j, and it's a it's a you know it's kind of a an invention of Neo4j. It's grown up out of Neo4j. So where does GraphQL fit into all this, uh,
2: Michael? You want yeah,
0: me take it? I can. take it?
1: Yeah, I, I, t- I started and then you finish it. Okay. Uh, so GraphQL is actually not a graph database query language. It's an API. Uh, language. So it's a language to express uh, APIs as a domain schema, to say so. So you have entities in a relation in a, in a, in a schema, which is pretty strict, actually, in the GraphQL f- uh, case. It's out of Facebook, so they open-sourced it in uh, 2015. Uh, sorry, in 20,
0: yeah. 20-something.
1: 20, 20 and... Um, the, uh, but what's really cool about GraphQL is it lends itself really naturally and very closely to the graph or domain model in general, right? So to, to the object model or graph model. So what we did for Neo4j and GraphQL was uh, basically we uh, built an integration that allows you then to uh, take the data that's in graph and expose it as a GraphQL API and put your own uh, business code as well in, in, into that, and we call this whole thing grandstack. And so you can actually um, combine all three of those and say, okay, I have a stream of events coming in. Um, they're getting aggregated into a domain model in, in neo and then the GraphQL API on, in front of that can power your, your application uh, or your mobile application uh, as such.
2: So there are a lot of different uh, plugins out there for different databases that will let you expose any database as... Uh, you know GraphQL layer, uh, because in GraphQL you have this separation between um, the API that you're presenting and a layer that they call the resolver, which is how you're providing the data implied by that graphy that graphy kind of query. Um, and so, if you were to put GraphQL on top of a relational database, typically behind the scenes, the resolver would be doing a lot of joins in order to uh, traverse the graph and give the user what they want. I think using Neo4j and GraphQL together is particularly powerful because you're, you're querying a graph model, and then what Neo4j is storing under the hood is literally a one-to-one mapping with what you're querying. And so if you've ever heard of like you know impedance mismatches in systems, there kind of isn't one there, and that makes the API really performant and quite easy to use. Um, With the, you know, kind of tying this back to Kafka and the connector too. So if you, if you zoom out and think architecturally about this, if Kafka lets you do streaming applications and using the uh, Neo4j connector, you can get any stream into a graph and then using GRANDstack, you can put a GraphQL API on top of any graph such, essentially this Grandstack stuff that we're talking about which you can find more out more about at uh, grandstack.io uh you can use these pieces together and put a graphql api on anything moving in or through kafka so that's that's pretty cool and pretty useful um we have a lot of customers who are using that to build front-end applications with react on top of Neo4j databases to do just any kind of thing that you would want to do with a web application.
0: Fantastic and grand stack for the uninitiated is GraphQL, React, Apollo, and Neo4j database. Otherwise, it would be grand.
1: Yeah, you got it. Well done. That's right. Yeah. Uh, one other thing that uh, that is really uh, cool about kind of combining Kafka with Neo4j is also that you can run something on, on your data that you usually wouldn't run on a transactional database, which is graph algorithms. So, which kind of brings us in the whole area of, you know, machine learning analytics and and so on. Uh, basically it uses the uh, topological structure of your data to get your new insights. So just by looking who's connected to whom, not just by one hop, but by n hops. So remember PageRank for for Google Search, for instance, uh, allows you to get new insights from your data. And so you can take your Kafka stream port uh, or ingest a certain portion of that into, or a number of streams ingest a certain portion of that into a a graph, then run graph algorithms and have the results of these graph algorithms either stream back, again, uh, to Kafka to consume somewhere else or enrich your actual graph to uh, serve other kind of um, use cases as well. So you can do lots of really cool uh, stuff putting all these kind of building blocks. It's almost like Lego uh, putting that all together.
2: Michael, can I I tell a story about the NBC thing to kind of make that concrete? Yep. Um, So uh, by far one of the most fun things I ever got to do at Neo4j, since I've worked here, was part of what this data journalism program that we have, where we sometimes work with journalists who have data sets, we get insights out of them, and then they write articles about it. Some journalists from NBC approached us a while ago, Uh, they had this dump of Twitter data that was evidence of Russian manipulation of the 2016 election. And so Twitter being a social network is a really great graphy data set because it's just a bunch of tweets and who's talking to who and, uh, you know, who follows who and so on and so forth. And so we took all of these tweets and then put them into a Neo4j database and then used a, a set of graph algorithm t- techniques called community detection. And effectively, we were looking at who is replying to who and who is retweeting who. And you can think of this graph as being densely connected in areas where there are a bunch of friends who hang together and sparsely connected between areas that are not talking or that are not connected to one another. And so by using these graph algos, we can actually discover uh, sort of sub-clusters of Russian trolls and then talk about what topics they were pushing And how that might have had an effect on the election on the basis of how they clustered into these communities. Like maybe some were pushing this particular piece of divisive rhetoric while others were focusing on something else. Um, So using Kafka, you can imagine setting up an architecture where tweets are streaming in real time through Kafka and into Neo4j. And then you're running these types of graph algorithms on an ongoing basis that's providing you insight about how an entire social community is communicating um, it's not about the individual tweets or the individual users it's about the patterns of interactions and so that's where I would sort of say sometimes you're going to use a graph is when the relationships between data items are more important than the data items themselves and um, we have this entire package of different graph algorithms, all the way from the really standard ones like PageRank that have, you know, were were created by Google way back when, um, all the way up to some more exploratory and new ones. And those are just functions that you can call inside of the database. Once you then use those graph algorithms, they produce extra pieces of metadata or extra properties, if you will, which you can then re-inject into a Kafka topic. So. With adding that little loop to an architecture, you can, I mean, effectively, the bottom line here is that you can add graph superpowers to an existing application.
0: Right, easily. And if, if into a streaming application, if you've got your data in Kafka where it belongs, it's yes. now straightforward to get it into this this graph engine. And it's really cool to see how yes. those algorithms have kind of uh, been pulled up into the Cypher stack, right? And, and that's just things I can do now, you know, because... I know you used to have to write that in Cypher, but why would you write that? You know, what? What? what's the value in you writing that when you could just make it a function call? Exactly, that's that's, that's right. right. How that's about, um, you guys have a Kafka Summit talk uh, coming up. Kafka Summit is coming up soon.
2: Well, see Tim, now you're Segway <laughs> guy. Um, <laughs> The, the thing is, yes, we do have a uh, Kafka Summit talk coming up. Uh, I think that's September 30th and October 1st in San Francisco. Is that right, Tim? Nailed it. That's right. Well,
0: um, In the Hilton, uh, Hilton Union Square in San Francisco. And listen through the end of the show for a discount code. Anyway, go on.
2: Uh, I will be there um, co-presenting with my colleague, Will Lyon. And so as we've been talking about this Grandstack stuff, Will Lyon is the mastermind behind the Grandstack stuff and is part of our developer relations group and an all-around awesome guy. The topic of our talk is extending the stream-table duality into a trinity with graphs. Mm. And some of the topics that we've been talking about on this podcast are going to be covered there in terms of how to add graph analytics into an application, but we're going to go deeper, and there's going to be some technical configuration gore, and we're going to pair it with a real-world use case from a customer that's a large financial institution.
0: That sounds amazing, and uh, there's four tracks, so everybody has choices to make, and I don't recall off the top of my head what you're uh, up against in that slot, but that really sounds like a great talk. So as a reminder, everybody, just listen a few more minutes, you'll get a discount code.
2: Oh, um. also, we have uh, Neo4j is going to have a small booth at Kafka Summit, and we have some colleagues who I think the world of who are showing up just to geek out about graphs and uh, streams. And so if for some reason you can't make the talk, but you're still at the event, come say hello, get a sticker, and uh, um, look for some of our folks who can talk about the the details.
0: Yep. And folks must be present to win. So please be there.
2: We, We have this... Uh, if you guys haven't met Kareen Wallach, you may meet her at this event. She's amazing. At the last conference that I went to with her, she she systematically located every single David at the conference and had a group photo of all Davids at the conference at our booth on the last day.
0: <laughs> that is, um, incredible. I was one of
2: the Davids. I mean, <laughs>
0: <in there. laughs> okay. If we do that again, I'm also going to need a photo of all of the Karens. Uh, so to that's, that's, okay. the, that's the thing that we're going to need to do. Yeah. So. Um, that's great. Fair enough. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll watch the, the David photo. Obviously I can't be in it.
2: Well, that, you know, she, she got inspired in the moment. I don't know if we're going to do David's. I think we could do Karen's or Kareen's. That would be a great idea for this
0: one. So Yeah. Kareen is it's, it's, I know it's spelled Karen. I know it's pronounced Kareen. I know her, Um, but I, she would have to, I think, broaden that to the Karen's. that's Uh, true uh, there might not be
2: enough kareens around there's not uh, gonna be
0: there's not gonna be a lot it's only like gonna be like a couple thousand people and you might have a couple of kareens in that crowd but there should be a substantial number of Karens and kareen if you don't mind since i know you get called karen all the time anyway um if you (laughs) please just broaden that and do the david picture and do the karen picture tweet them and at me at tl berglund in that tweet and i think everybody will be okay yeah
2: well she's fantastic at creating new relationships between nodes at a conference and i expect she's going to be Mm -hmm. there doing that
0: i have been a personal beneficiary of that very activity uh by that very person she really is fantastic that's true well my guests today have been uh michael hunger and david allen of neo4j michael and david thanks for being a part of streaming audio thank you tim
1: Thank you, Tim. And uh, just a final note, uh, we would love you to try out our connector to to Neo4j and give us feedback and uh, having that would be really valuable to us. Um, You find it under um, neo4j.com slash labs slash Kafka and there's everything that you need to know about the connector.
0: Hey, you know what you get for listening to the end? A Kafka Summit discount code. Kafka Summit is coming up on September 30th and October 1st in downtown San Francisco, and you can get 30% off if you go to kafka summit.org and use the discount code audio19 during checkout. Just enter audio19 while registering at kafka summit.org, and that 30% off is all yours. I'd love to see you there. But hey, I hope this podcast was helpful to you. If you want to discuss it or ask a question, you can always reach out to me at, at @tlberglund TL on Twitter. That's T L B E R G L U uh, N D. Or you can leave a comment on a YouTube video or reach out in our community slack. There's a slack signup link in the show notes if you want to register there. And while you're at it, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and to this podcast wherever fine podcasts are sold. And if you subscribe through iTunes, be sure to leave us a review there. That helps other people discover the podcast, which is a good thing. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you next time.